Hello, sword people, and welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get into the interview, I ought to let you know that next week I will be launching a crowdfunding campaign full of Sword Audio Heaven, which is an audiobook version of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defence from 1599, and it's been recorded both in modern pronunciation and also in original pronunciation, so it sounds as close as possible to how George Silver himself might have read it. Listen out for an extra in-between episode next week when I'll be going into that in more detail and giving you details as to where you can go to back the campaign, buy the audiobook, and revel in Elizabethan sword heaven. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Monica Gordio, known in the SCA as Ilador de Bedegrain. She is a cook, fencer, marshal, seneschal, knitter, laurel, and master of defence. And we'll get into most of what those things actually mean in the interview. So without further ado, Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So my first question, uh, whereabouts are you? So I live near Washington, D.C., and if your folks don't know where that is, which would be confusing because most of the world knows, it is in the United States of America on the East Coast, near in the North America uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Right. So, uh, which is why you were there when I met you at um, Lord Baltimore's Challenge in 2019. Yes, yes, yes that's yeah, so it was conveniently local to you. I had to like fly across the Atlantic to get there, but no, you just just rock up. <laughs> okay, now, um, but honestly, Monica, <laughs> you, <laughs> you are you are that Monica, aren't you? I am, in fact, that Monica. So in so ten over ten, slightly over ten years ago, I became internet famous for it's much longer than fifteen minutes. It, it's about two weeks, by the way. Um, because a uh, newspaper, it's not really a newspaper, it was like a pickup magazine. It was, a, it was basically free, but it was for profit magazine, plagiarized an article that I wrote on 14th, comparing 14th and 16th century English apple pie, or two pie recipes. And I had written an article about it, and I had written up the, redacted the recipe, two recipes, and put that in the article. And the editor picked it up and put it in her magazine. And um, because the medieval cooking world is very small, much like the medieval sword world is very small, someone saw it and immediately emailed me and asked me how I got published. And I was like, what are you talking about? And uh, very quickly um, it found out that I had been plagiarized. I contacted the editor and said, hey, how did this happen? And I got back one of the snarkiest replies of all time that included, but honestly, Monica, um, the internet is public domain. And you she actually told me I should pay her for the editing that she did on and I got mad and posted it, contact, and asked, I posted it to my live journal asking some folks, hey, what should I do about this? 
And it blew up. What happened is a gentleman by the name of Nick Mamatas, who is a, uh, he was at the time a horror writer or a science fiction writer, he calls himself a genre writer now. He posted about it on his life journal. And John, and I'm going to butcher this name, John Scalazzi, very famous science fiction writer. And then he was also the science fiction writer, uh, president, uh, writer's president. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, he then tweeted about it and then oh God. about it. And yeah. then Neil Gaiman tweeted about it. And then it went all over the Internet. And <laughs> this was 10 years ago. This was way before, like, um, Internet mobs had started, had before. And it was pro- it was considered one of the first ones at the time. I got interviewed by the Washington Post, by the Australians, the Canadians. I got interviewed by tons of people when it happened. I had basically asked the editor to send $130 because that was 10 cents a word at the time, which was double the going price at the time, Mm -hmm. um, and send it to the Columbia School of Journalism, slightly in a snarky way of perhaps you should have left journalism school. (laughs) um, a ton, a t- more than a ton of people posted all over her Facebook page, on Twitter, everywhere. And within two weeks, the 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 magazine had shut down. Wow. And when that and uh, I got a weird apology. It's floating around on the internet. And then I got a second non-apology. And she donated the hundred thirty dollars to the Columbia School of Journalism. So like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah well it's a very dangerous precedent if if the idea that everything that's posted on the internet is out of copyright and public domain was allowed to persist then a whole lot of people including me would never get paid for their work correct and on top of that she had not just sent it to me the internet kind of did a mass research pro- collective mass research project and found out that Disney, uh, Martha Stewart, NPR, tons of, she like over a hundred some articles because she had posted all of her, uh, all of her magazine and, and content on Facebook as well. And so all of that got taken down. It was, it was a, uh, it was a big deal at the time, <laughs> me, right? This is the first time. I'm but the thing that makes me literally the happiest is that I get occasionally emails from folks who are saying things to me like, I teach this in my journalism class, if this is what you could do, or any, when, and it, uh, then there was a bunch of actual um, academic articles on what happened. And I, I found that highly amusing that I'm, I was, or, uh, I'm a part of academia. <laughs> And I have a Wikipedia page, right? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> because somebody ripped off your stuff. Yes, because somebody ripped off my stuff. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, it's great that you have stuff to be ripped off. I mean, if you think about it, like, I mean, the reason we're talking is that you have all these all this expertise and these interests. Um, and so you were comparing two apple pie recipes. Yes. Um, so tell us about... The okay, what I do, as everybody listening probably knows, is I focus on the historical swordsmanship side of things. So I go into these sources and I figure out how sword fights were supposed to be done and you know how you're supposed to practice with a sword, and that's what I do. I have this very, very 
sort of narrow focus into that one area of history, right? I don't actually know anything about medieval cookery at all. So <laughs> how would you fix that? So I'm going to like, I disagree with you a little bit. You already know a little bit because you already are talking about primary sources and going back and learning from mm-hmm. a primary source and learning how to make something with it. It's pretty much the same with uh, medieval cooking as well, is go find a primary source. And then sometimes you're going to have, it helps to have one secondary sources, people who've already looked at it, already translated mm-hmm. it. Now, admittedly, t- there's been a ton of work done on the uh, extant English um, medieval uh, cookbooks that are out there. Uh, and we're finding more and more every day, not just English, but all across Europe. And then there's some folks that have, I believe there's a Korean and there's a Chinese and then there's some Japanese medieval area cookbooks as well. But in that same vein, right, you're finding stuff that from that time period, you're learning about it. And then you're also learning, taking stuff that you already know. You already know how to move your body. You already know some stuff about swords. And then you're using that knowledge and helping it, helping you translate or figure out what's going on. Same with cooking. I learned how to cook more or less from my mom growing up. She did most of the cooking. I helped out a little bit here or there. But then I joined the SCA back um, oh, I'm old, 30 years ago, 30 some years ago. And I immediately started, I joined the cooks. Uh, what happened was, is I went to an event, didn't know what to do. My boyfriend at the time was like, go help in the kitchen because I knew how to chop vegetables. And that started my love affair of medieval cooking because I then, because uh, one, it was really fun to be in a kitchen with a bunch of people who were funny and hilarious and you have a really good time. And two, it really started my interest in learning about what did they do back then? And can we now recreate it now? So um, it's basically you find a cookbook that interests you in some fashion. You learn about it, learn about the history of it, learn about who was using it, what was this for? Because there's a huge difference between a 14th century manual, which was probably, it was handwritten, versus something done in the Elizabethan age, which was, they had the printing press at that point in time. The one was made for a single source, probably for a king or his household. And the later 16th century ones were made for people, for large numbers of people, for larger numbers, people who could afford Mm -hmm. them at the very least. So understanding that sort of like learning about the history of it and learning about the history of the book then you go and learn about the history of the materials they had available at the time. And then you start looking at the actual word. And at that point, it really uh, becomes uh, very in, like hands-on investigatory, right? Like, I'm going to try and make a 14th century pie, go to see what ingredients they had. Learn about what ingredients they had back then that we don't have now. Right. Um, apples, for example, are apples, at least here in the United States, they, we've gotten so much better in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. But for a long period of time, we had a we didn't have a huge number of apples. We had like Red Delicious, which is gross. And but now we have all kinds of different varieties. But we don't mm-hmm. have the same kind of varieties that they had back in 14th century England. Well, right, they've changed over the last 500 years. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Much like with swords, right? We don't have their exact 
stores the data. Mm. So we have to make simulators and we're going to have to use the techniques that we have now. And a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's mass produced versus like I got a hand forged sword that someone's going to make for me. It's un- unlikely. That's going to be a little expensive. And I probably <laughs> would love it. I have a few. I, I have a few like that. Of course I, I do. <laughs> you're using those on a daily basis, like for practice. Well, maybe you are. Uh, you well, <laughs> I don't. I don't use them for blade on blade stuff. No, exactly. too expensive. Right. Too expensive. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like there is the whole like. All right, I'm going to go get a plot of land, get a tree, plant it, wait twenty to thirty years before be able to start produce. Yeah, that's a little farther yeah. down. So we try and get as close as we can today with both food and sword fighting as best that we can. I just read a book um, by Ruth Goodman, who I'm actually interviewing tomorrow for the same show. Um, and it's called um, The Domestic Revolution, about how in Britain uh, we shifted from a wood-burning economy to a coal-burning economy towards the end of the 16th century. And yeah. it goes into huge depth and detail about medieval and Tudor and later period ovens and heat sources and how that affects what you cook and how you cook and all that kind of stuff. So um, do you go into the – I mean, are you like cooking on medieval-type fires with – irons and stuff or are you using modern modern equipment primarily using modern equipment so mm-hmm. i'm in the sca the society for creative anachronism and my main uh art is mm-hmm. uh, feeding lots of people at an event so in the right. before times when we would get together i would cook anywhere from 40 to for, for 40 to 150 people and while I have been to um, Hampton Court and I've seen their beautiful kitchen that I'm just like in love with, I love that place so mm-hmm. much. I can't afford that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I can't afford that. So I am using very modern equipment as best I can. I have done some cooking on a fire and it is very different. My biggest thing I have been doing lately, I've done it this year would have been my fifth year in a row, is gone to an event called Gulf Wars, which is in Mississippi, um, in, uh, in, in here in the United States. And uh, for my encampment, I tried to prepare five, like we're there five, we're there seven days, but like usually this, that Sunday and that Saturday are take up and put down and put up and take down. There we are. And uh, so during the week I would make five different uh, as period meals as I could. And we're cooking on barbecue grills and on other open, some other open fire activities there. But the majority of the time it's in a fairly modern kitchen. In part also, is there are some things about the Middle Ages I do not want to recreate, like food poisoning and salmonella. (laughs) 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 Okay. I don't want to recreate weevils. Also don't want to recreate weevils. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Now, do you have any favorite examples of how intangible things like time, temperature, hand techniques, anything like that were recorded? Is there much to do with that? No, there's like, they, because... A lot of the stuff is like written. So kind of, well, one of my fencing teachers would talk about how period manuals were often written as like notes for their students, right? As a reminder, remember when we did this thing, this is how you do this. Much in the same way, at least until later period, until like later into the 16th century, 1500s, um, early, late, late 16th century, the majority of it is 
really vague, like take a crust and put meat into it and into the, and then put a, put it into mm. a, a top on it and cook it well. Like that's literally almost as close to one of the recipes that they have from, from that time period there. Once you start getting in later, like, um, the Italian cook, and I'm going to butcher the name, Bartolomo Scappi, who's one of my favorites. He, his books like this, I don't know, two to three inches thick, at least in the modern uh, translation of it. And it is, it goes into much, much more detail. But the majority of the time, it's, it is very vague. And that was a lot later, right? Yeah, m- much That's later. 17th century? Is that right? Uh, no, Scappi is late 16th century. He okay. cooked, um, he cooked for some cardinals and at least one pope, as far as left. Okay. Cool. So, um, oh, just skipping back briefly, um, if we go back to the plagiarism instance, is there okay. anything you're doing differently now? Has that changed your... Like, pep- like I, I, are you publishing differently or are you... I have, so I do have a website. The website is called goodcookery.com and it's G-O-D-E-C-O-O-K-E-R-Y. And there'll be a link in the show notes. That's right. And it is, uh, I manage it. It was originally written by my uh, teacher um, who went by uh, Master Human in the SCA. And he uh he was the one where I published the site. The majority of the stuff that I write is for the SCA. And so I generally, I haven't really published anything on the internet since, wait, scratch that, Live Journal. I did actually publish a number of uh, articles on Live Journal about some cooking. And the one time we got hit by a tornado at Gulf Wars and I made pie during a tornado. Fun <laughs> story. So, um, but no, so I but I, has I, it put? Did it put you off publishing stuff online? Uh, yes and no. I learned about uh, Creative Commons a bit after. Like after mm-hmm. this happened, I became much more interested in learning about copyright. So I would, if I was going to publish more things, I was going to put it on uh, for Creative Copyright. Oh, now I have an answer for one of your late questions at the end of uh, end okay. the interview. But yes learn more about it and I just haven't had the urge to publish as much as I used to so that is a shame uh, (laughs) I have well part of the problem is is that um, unless it is in English it is Mm -hmm. a translation and therefore it is someone else's work ah right okay I don't want to uh, infringe on their copyright by publishing their translation so, so I'm really so I can take the I could take the Italian and then here is my and then go go to this book at this page and read this thing and then do that. So yes, yeah, so there are ways of it. I think I think if you were if you're copying a recipe out of a book and you're clear about where the recipe comes from and you credit the author of that recipe and the translator of that, I. You know, it's not like you're reproducing the whole book. It's like you're taking one recipe and then describing your experience of recreating that recipe um, and obviously linking to the translator or whatever, if that's practical. I, don't, I can't think how anyone would have a problem with that. I mean, if I had a modern cookbook and I was dead into cookery and I you know, posted a thing about my experience of cooking, I don't know, Nigella Lawson's apple pie, um, I think Nigella would probably be thrilled. I don't, I don't think... 
But if I took her book and then published that as, like, you know, it, separately, it, that would... It, so it really comes down to, like, what is fair use. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to infringe on that when I don't have to. So right. it really depends. Like, taking a whole recipe might or might not be... Might annoy an author or not. So okay. we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, okay. If any of you have written, any listeners have have written translations of medieval cookbooks and want Monica to <laughs> recreate those recipes in practice and blog about it, please drop me a line and I will pass it on to her, and then <laughs> we can maybe encourage her to get back into the deep end of the internet. That's, that's, fair. that's fair. Okay. Um, all right. So, sorry, that was me kind of skipping about a bit. Um, so. Would you say that the diversity of our food has increased or decreased since medieval times? As a, I mean, you said there are things that there were, were available then that aren't now, but my, my impression is we have a much broader range of, rest, of ingredients to, to pick from. We, we, are, we do. The, we have so many cultures now that they just did not have been. Like I, uh, this week, I've eaten Creole, and I've uh-huh. also sushi and I've eaten Thai and Italian. That would never happen in the Middle t- Middle Ages, right? No. But um, we also have had, we, yeah, so it, it just, we do with, with opening up of the world, the fact that we have so much travel and so much uh, commercial uh, spices and whatnot, we have a much diverse, uh, much more diverse ability. We have an ability, at least Western um First world, people have a greater ability to get more diverse amounts of, of food. So, yeah, we do have that. They, um, yeah, so that's, that's going to be my answer to that. But there is a lot of commercialization of food, too, and I'm not quite sure that is as healthy as they had back then either. So some of the, like, ver- here in the United States, we have very, very large farms for uh, meat and cattle, and they, um, I'm not quite sure that's very healthy for the planet. Okay, fair enough. Um, now, when I introduce you to everyone, um, I mentioned Cook, which we've sort of talked about, but we haven't really discussed Fencer, Marshall, Seneschal, Knitter, Laurel, or Master of Defense. Let's leave Knitter aside for it. Knitters in the audience, we are coming back to knitting, I promise. Because <laughs> I, when, when when I told my patrons that I was going to be interviewing you, there there was there was some knitting questions came up, so okay. I'll, I'll I'll get to those later. Um, but so, what are Marshall? I mean, I mean, we all know what fences are. I assume if you're listening to this particular show, but Marshall, Seneschal, Laurel, Master of Defense. Okay. So in there, there's a lot there in the essay. Mm-hmm. Um, a marshal is someone who is. <sighs> I'm not going to say coach, but judge is perhaps a good a good answer. They are the ones. They are your safety officer. That's the best way to. Say oh, okay. It. So a fencing safety officer. Fencing okay. safety officer. Yes. Uh, when when fencing is happening, a marshal inspects you to make sure that all of your clothing and your gear matches what it's supposed to be okay. the minimum requirements in the SCA. And, and there's a qualification for that to be a marshal. Yes, absolutely. So mm-hmm. it. It depends by your group, but usually you have to be a fencer for some number of years, and then you become a marshal in training, and you basically spend six months to a year training under other marshals, 
And then after that, you are then qualified to run a practice and make sure everyone is being very safe. Excellent. That's a really good idea. I think we could use a bit more of that in historical martial arts generally, to be honest. I think so too. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll get on to the sort of historical martial arts SCA distinctions okay. in a little bit. But um, so Seneschal? So Seneschal is basically the local president or vice president. So right now I am the kingdom Seneschal for the kingdom of Athelmark, which basically means I'm the regional vice president for the SCA. So I do all of the administrative work for keeping the, uh, the our club running is the basic. So, and the way that the SCA is structured is there's an overarching SCA that is the board of directors and has a society seneschal, which is the it basically the person who's running, who's who's my boss, and then I am the regional vice president or the kingdom seneschal, and then there are local groups, or we call them shires or baronies, but they're basically clubs, and they have uh, and they have baronial or shire um, seneschals and they are the president and they're the ones who make sure the club keeps running who do, mm-hmm. do all the paperwork all, all of that right so, all yeah. the stuff that is absolutely essential if we're actually going to have a place to show up to practice in and the insurances and the equipment and all yeah. of that sort of stuff and they never get any bloody credit <laughs> <laughs> I do my best to make sure that my folks get credit for credit. Oh, sure, sure. But also, you know, if you're, if you're, it's, yeah, the it's like, officer, yes. it's, it's, the, it's the unsexy admin side of things that actually makes it all work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> unsexy okay. is the right word. Correct. Okay. Yeah. But, but critically important. It's very, like, very important. You know, I, 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 I've known some people who, whose contribution to the art of arms has gone completely unnoticed by most of the world, but actually they have kept a local fencing club running for like 15 years and without them it would just fold they and we should do absolutely more to make sure our admin folks are 100 percent given more love than they are now because absolutely without them we don't we don't have places to practice we know places to work and it is, right. it is a job it is an absolute yeah okay so laurel Laurel means that I have reached the highest award that you can in the SCA for arts and sciences, and it means that I am a peer, a peer of the realm that is the kind of overarching term for the terminal award for uh, the SCA. And so I have a peerage in arts and sciences, and we call that the Laurel. And that, is that regarding cookery? Yeah. It's absolutely. Okay. Yeah. okay. So could you get a Laurel in fencing? You can, and some people have. And the way okay. we differentiate that between that and the master defense, which we'll just talking a little bit, is you get a lore for fencing for your historical like knowledge and teaching of like period manuals, like how oh, okay. a teaching a period style and period manuals. And so our dear friend uh, David Biggs, the yeah, on the uh, uh, Lord Baltimore challenge, which. Hopefully we'll come back. Maybe. I'm fingers crossed. Well, right. So much, um, which is an app. He is a Laurel offense. So okay. Laurel fencing. So, so he will tell you he, that his kingdom doesn't do laurels of particular things, but he got it for fencing. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so that's distinct from Master of Defense. Yes. Master of Defense is the peerage for prowess. And so okay. I, given that, they, we developed that 
six years ago this May. It was when the when it first became, like so peerages have been the SCA has been around for over fifty years, and they uh, six years ago decided we were going to add a peerage for fencing, and I was uh, one of the first masters of defense made. I was the first master. Okay. Of for the, it was a premier master of defense made for the West Kingdom when I was living out in San Francisco. Okay, so um, how was that? How is that judged? How is that awarded? That is a complicated question. <laughs> well, we have time. We do. So the SEA is built off of the idea that you can become king and queen of your kingdom by right of arms. And what they do is, uh, in a different martial activity called heavy weapons, they have a tournament, and the winner of that tournament and his either uh, and his consort. So this we do we can have general we do have uh, you can be uh, same sex or gender neutral. And be, which is a change from what it was. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah, some time ago. And so you're the, you you have the sovereign and the consort, I'm just, or king and queen usually, who win their tournament. The concert inspires Mm. the combatant. And they reign for anywhere between four to six months. During COVID, it's been a little longer because we have. Tournaments, but usually it's six months. And in that six-month time period when you are king and queen or sovereign and sovereign, you can then give awards. That is the only, that, that is the biggest uh, benefit of being okay. uh, so, being royalty in the SCA, royalty air quotes, um, yeah. in the SCA is that you give awards to your people. And so the biggest end award that you can get is a peerage. And so the king and queen of the West Kingdom gave me uh, the, uh, made me a master of defense. The way it happened was my understanding for them is, is that they, before the, before the peerage, we had this, we had an award called the White Scarf and that we still have the period, we also, we still have that award. And that was considered a grant level. So depending on what kingdom you were on, it was generally a grant level award. So there's um, AOA, or just the beginning awards, there's uh, the grant level awards, and then there's the peerages. And the grant level award was the White Scarf, and that is what we had for 30-some years mm-hmm. at that point. And yeah, my friend William Wilson has a White Scarf in fencing, I believe. Didn't yeah. he have, wasn't he also made a Master of Defense recently? I don't know. I, honestly, I don't keep track of SCA peerages. Right. He's an absolutely amazing. He's a white scarf. Absolutely. I yeah. have taken classes from him and he's fantastic. He's a great guy. And so yeah, we've been friends a long time. Absolutely. He is a great, great teacher. Um, he has a white scarf. And so they asked all of the white scarves of the West Kingdom who are in your top three. And apparently I was on a number. I was per them. I was on all of everyone's list. That someone who's given it right, so that's why they they included me. And then they picked two other people to be masters of defense as well. And then and then basically every kingdom got to pick their premier at that point. And then it continues. Queen okay. pull the order, and mm-hmm. they ask the order, "Who do you think should be in there with you?" And the order responds, or uh, and. and then they usually will pick the people. They will grant the awards to people the the order thinks should be in there. 
That's the okay. usual way. I mean, that's a like, I mean, it's very complicated and each person's different, but it's basically the king and queen or the sovereign and sovereign have decided okay. that you have a peerage and poof, you're a master. Of okay. So, so there, there isn't like a, a specific training program you go through or particular things you have to, points you have to hit. There are some minimum requirements that you have to have, and they are mm. written down in the uh, board. We call it Kapora. Those are our governing documents. But prowess is absolutely a requirement, as well as uh, comportment is another one. You have to be basically, most people have to, con- or at least the king and queen have to consider you to be a good and decent person for the SEA. And then mm-hmm. you also have to have a uh, prowess and then there are some some people forget this but you have to know how to play chess and you know have to know how to dance really oh that's excellent yeah let's have a slightly broader requirement you need to be a well-rounded member of the sca for you to get a okay. peerage as well so i do know <laughs> dance or at least i have done it in the past and there are some very Low ones that are like walkie dances, uh, the yeah. pavan and all of that. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, see, I, I think I know how to dance, but my wife strongly disagrees. At least if you've shown some interest in dancing, that's really all <laughs> Okay. Now, you talk about prowess, and you're a long standing competitive rapier fencer who currently ranked 35 worldwide in the HEMA rankings. Not that, well, I only know that because I looked it up just for this interview. <laughs> um, so, what. Okay, many of the people listening are very interested in like competitive fencing, rapier, alongside whatever else. And to my mind, fencing is that there are massive commonalities in all different styles of fencing, particularly in like how you approach competitive fencing. So you're obviously pretty good at it. So how do you do it? I had a huge leg up starting as a kid in that my... uh, I decided I wanted to try sports. My dad played sports his entire career. My mom did a little bit, but not as much as my dad did. And so at age eight, I started playing basketball and softball competitively. Mm -hmm. I did that throughout my entire school career. So from age eight through age 18, I was in usually three sporting programs a year. Sometimes four. I did track for a little bit, but I'm not a fast runner. So like that ended that quickly. But like I did basketball. I was swimming. I played softball and I was in two swimming uh, leagues. So I was doing a lot of competition all the time. And when I've really and then I took a 10 year period off and then I started fencing and I determined really that fencing is just like any other competitive sport. You have to train to be competitive. And so my viewpoint is is that every single time I am ready to start, it is exactly like jump ball was for me when I was playing basketball. Back in the day, they don't do it anymore. When two people went to start every quarter or when two people uh, had the same ball, grabbed the ball at the same time, they did something called jump ball, which was where two people faced off and then you jumped for the ball And then the person who jumped the fastest and tallest got it. And so that was my practice. I had for every single basketball game, because I was was one of the tallest women, if not the tallest woman on the team, I was being the one who was doing jump ball all of the time. I was, there was all of that very quick, have to get ready to perform right now. And that was just something I drilled practically daily 
um, growing up. And so learning how to do translating that technique into fencing was very easy. I can really get into the mindset, mental mindset of like, oh, it's right, it's go time and it's right now. Now, um, since then, because I am an adult and I can do research, I like to do research, I did a lot of research on, uh, on how, how this works. And my favorite book on this is called Winning the Mental Way. It is out of print, but I will absolutely send you a link to it. Or to the, so, if, so if your folks want to look at it. And it, it's really literally everything I ever learned in competitive sports in high school. And a lot of it has to do with learning how to manage your excitement or adrenaline. Like if it's too yeah. high or it's too low. Um, two quick things that I... Um, that I do, actually three things. The first one is, is I have a mantra that I say in my head, and it really depends on which uh, state I am in. If I am too high, I, um, I think of the old Bruce Lee saying of be water. Everyone's mantra should be different, but be water is mine. Like that's just like, you know, go with the flow, just like learn to calm myself down a little bit. And the, uh, the other one is when I am too low, it is not acceptable for a family-friendly podcast. To be honest, as soon as I cross the field, my mindset immediately goes into like Darth Vader mode. And I think I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. Like, just like that. Like, absolutely. <laughs> okay. No. Mm, this, you're, you're here to kill me and I mean that with like air quotes around it you're here to win you're here to beat me and I'm not gonna let you do that so that's really my mindset at the time when I get on the field and you can kind of tell even me talking about it I'm getting into that mindset um the physical techniques two physical techniques that I have is if it's too high I do circle breathing in through the nose out through the mouth and if you do that for a while, it helps regulate your heartbeat and helps regulate your, at least helps regulate my adrenaline. So into the nose, out through the mouth, and just do that circle type of thinking of it as a circle, right? And then for, if it's too, if it's still too low, so again, going back and forth, if it's too low, um, a friend of mine, Puck Curtis, who teaches Destreza, he taught me the shoving game, which is where you and your friend with love and consent go to each other and then you start like hitting each other really hard on the chest. Like one of them shoves you really hard one way and then you do it back and forth. And I will tell you, right, <laughs> after a few minutes, I'm like, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Reminds me of like what American football players do when you see them hitting each other on the pads, like ready, like get our excitement up, we're ready to go. So I see... Like, it feels the same sort of, like, adrenaline increaser for me. That's fascinating, because I teach a lot of breathing exercises for exactly the, the purpose of, well, for many different purposes, but including the ability to adjust your level of arousal up or down. I have, there are ways of doing it either way. Yeah. I have your uh, your solo class, and I've, t- I've done your breathing class. Oh, right, cool. Yes, I highly recommend your soul classes to anyone who is interested. Oh, thank you, Monica. Well, I'll definitely put a link to those in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So, now, we first met at Lord Baltimore's Challenge in 2019, and I actually was presiding over, uh, well, I was running, a, um, like, the rings. Yes. 
And I actually had you in, in my rings once or twice. So I've actually seen you, you fence. And as I recall, you just sort of like stabbed everybody in the face and walked away, <laughs> which was great. No, it, was, it was really good. So, so, so listeners, I have, I have actually watched Monica Fence and um, yeah, she knows what she's doing. I don't, so, I don't mess around either. Like that, it's no, no, you just get in there and stab them. Right. Cause why, right. The longer my philosophy on this is the longer you are standing, the more likely you're going to stab me. So I'm just going to stab you first. So I just get it done quick. Right. And, and the longer the fight goes on for the more likely something sort of unpredictable will happen. Yes. Chaos and randomness. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, but we have the SCA mm-hmm. and we have, should we say the historical martial arts community and they are, they overlap in considerably, yes. Um, but they are not the same cultures. Yes. And at Lord Baltimore's challenge, we had historical martial arts fencers and SCA fencers playing nicely all day. Um, so I have, you know, I have my impression of how that worked. And obviously, I'm coming from the historical martial arts side of things. Um, what's your take on the on the two different cultures there? I, my biggest take is I don't get why there is animosity between the two. Right. Why? It doesn't make any sense. We love swords. Swords are great. Right. Swords. More swords. (laughs) I want more swords. So I I think it has to do with respect, right? Like like as long as both groups respect each other and understand what the other one is about, I think... We, I think everyone should be come together really and just have more swords. The SCA is a very large tent. And by very large tent, I mean you do not need to have a whole lot to start. You need to make an attempt at pre-17th century culture. An attempt. So basically any kind of like tea tunic like object, right? Just come on by. And that does seem to cause some consternation with the uh, folks who are like, uh, they they seem to have low standards. We do. We have very low standards entirely so that we get more and more people involved. And the longer you are in the SCA, generally, the more you are interested in being like, I want to be like the cool kids and start wearing cooler and cooler outfits. And then you learn to hand sew, right? Right. So, it's really, that's why there's such a low bar in the SCA is we were made by college students back in 19, in the 1969, I think is when it started. We were made by college students. And so the bar is really low. Just make an attempt to come on in and then we will slowly over your time period get you to wherever right. it is you want to go. And, and, okay. And when I run beginner's courses, very often I get emails from people wanting to sign up to the beginner's course, but they're not sure whether they should because they don't have any experience of swords. Is that okay? And I'm like, that's the whole point. Absolute Right, right. Sure. Come on. Yes. Sure. Right. Um, that's where you start. It's not where you finish. And, 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 and the thing is, I've seen in the SCA, I've seen the most absolutely appallingly terrible equipment and dreadful fencing. And all. But also, I have seen some of the absolute finest, like most gorgeously hand tailored with, with like hand spun thread and hand woven clothes and, and elegant fencing. I mean, several of my, my, several of the colleagues I respect the most 
either are either in still in the SCA or at least started in the SCA. And it's like to to look at to judge the SCA by the shall we say the um, the I'm wearing a pillowcase over my <laughs> over my regular clothes, right? <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit like judging historical martial arts by how people look like in their first class. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's the clothing aspect. The other thing that I truly love about the SCA um, that I don't think HEMA quite gets is is that the number of tournaments that we have, at least COVID time, right? Like I am uh, at a a big event, like a week-long event, I am going to tournaments two to three times a day for a week. And wow, then, that's a lot of fencing. Right, yeah, exactly. And then we also have something that HEMA does not, which is completely historically inaccurate, but way so much fun I'm never giving it up, and that is melee. Which yeah. is so, I mean, it's not historically accurate. Let's be real right here. Like, it's not, but it is yeah, yeah. fun. It is so much fun to have 100 people, 100 people on your side, 100 people on the other, and you go in the woods and stab at each other. It's great. I, I've, I've done it in a reenactment context, not a SCA context, but yeah, it is super fun. So much fun, yes. And we do it mostly more or less safely. There's usually some, you know, someone does something to their ankle or knee or whatnot, but you, we sure. do it fairly safely. So I really enjoy that too. Uh, I really do like... The, the the HEMA is so intra and other Western martial art groups are so focused on uh, the manuals and learning from the manuals. And that part I do love. I do love that an awful lot. That is, um, to be honest, we, are, we have a lot of folks in the SCA that are much more interested in the competitive aspect of fencing than they are on the historical manuals no okay also in historical martial arts there are an awful lot of people now who are just interested in the tournaments and they go to the tournaments and they train for the tournaments and and we've seen a kind of a long sword tournament style of fencing evolve in real time over the last 15 years which is kind of like a combination of epe and kendo okay and it bears no relation that i can see to most of what we find in the medieval manuals, but that's okay. That's not what it's for. What it's for is for winning tournaments. And it does that extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to my mind, by the time somebody is doing that, they're not really doing historical martial arts at all anymore. It's a kind of a new, it's right. a sort of historically inspired sword sport, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. It's just, I think, I think we are getting broader and broader also, and we're finding, because, you know, we, we are effectively younger than the SCA by about, what, 20 years? I think so. And, and so I think we're sort of spreading out into those, those different areas. But I think because we, we don't really do the clothing and the... Well, okay, here's the thing. It's very easy for someone to look at uh, well, and that someone who's not doesn't really understand what they're seeing to look at somebody in perfect historical um, gear, like you know, beautifully reconstructed, and they're 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 doing a work, they're doing a kind of living history reconstruction of the clothing and the food, perhaps, and the woodwork. I've done a bit of medieval woodwork; it's great fun, um, and that and it looks a lot like larp if you don't know the details right right and there was i remember like 20 years ago there was this again nothing wrong with larp either i mean there are some fantastically interesting larps out there 
It's just, again, that's a whole another thing. But you, when you see, I think in historical martial arts, we kind of picked up a, an aversion to dressing up because the people we saw doing swords while dressed up were LARPing. So the SDA is not a LARP. Some people. I know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why it is is because I have LARPed. I am a, right. I've been a LARPer, and I do not get experience points, right? There's no story. <laughs> I don't get experience points, right? There's yeah. you know, like actually getting better fencing. So for going out and, and fencing is experiences. But the, the, my answer to those people who are like, I, uh, I don't want to dress up. Much like when we were just talking about earlier with like trying to get as close as we can to what it was like with medieval food and medieval cooking, right? As close as we can. You get such a different feel fighting in historically as accurate as we can, right? At as accurate as we can clothing than we can with sneakers and mm-hmm. shirt and a sweatshirt, right? Yeah. Um, just sort of like I the clothing is different and things do happen when you, and also though I do have to wear, I, I wear historical, like I wear a mask, right? Cause I'm, yeah. I'm you like being at a sea. Though I have to tell you, part of me does want like a Mansour scar at some point in time, but that's a <laughs> podcast. So, but yeah, like I, I recommend the folks that are like, oh, no, I don't want to dress up funny. First of all, dressing up is cool. That's We did it as kids. We're doing it now. It's a lot of fun. And it's why we dress up for weddings, right? It's because it's, sure. it's fun to, to look nice. And um, <coughs> so it is, it is great to – it helps you feel more like you're there. You're in that moment. That is one of the mm-hmm. things that the is really good for, particularly at night – and when you're out at a big event and it's nighttime and everything is lit by firelight, yeah, it really gives you that moment, that feeling of like, oh, this is what it was like, and that really makes me happy. Yeah, and I've I've done you know reenactments where we were dressed up in not very accurate medieval gear, and and after the battles and what have you, we were in the tent drinking not very accurate medieval beer. And in our not very accurate medieval gear, and it was great. And also, I would say, as a historical martial artist, I would say it's simply necessary that you test your interpretation wearing period clothing. Because if it doesn't work in the period gear, it can't be right. It can't be a correct interpretation. Like if you know, if if you're if there's a particular action and wearing the clothing the person who's going to be doing this would have been wearing at the time, it's just impractical then you must have made a mistake in your interpretation somewhere. Right. I'm going to agree. Like if a pie pie comes out of the oven and it's just a spludgy mess, you've made a mistake somewhere. Same is true. (laughs) I can usually figure out what that was. Yeah, 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 sure. (laughs) Um, Okay. Yeah. You know, I I was was at this um, role-playing convention where I used to give um, a a talk sort of on the realities of steels at Ropicon in Helsinki. And for like many years while I was living there, I used to go there every year and give a talk and whatever. And one guy came up to me and he he actually said, you probably won't want to talk to me because I'm in the SCA, but I have a question. 
right? About some aspect of historical thought. I've forgotten the question and I've forgotten my answer. Other than, I was like, why on earth would you think I wouldn't want to talk to you just because you're... That, that, that's the bit I remember because it was just so weird. But that's what I really found out, that in the SCA there's this impression that historical fencing people don't like SCA people. And I guess, I, and I have certainly come across in historical fencing this sort of, in, you know, this, just a, I don't know, like, like a prejudice that if you're in the SCA, you're probably just mucking about. And it doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't, I don't get it either, particularly when our culture, our, our group overlap and our interests so much. Right. We really should do so much better at like trying to, at least, if not get along, start going to each other's activities. I loved Lord Baltimore's challenge because of that. Exactly. I think David set it up to yes. do that. David did it that way. I mean, I do remember there was one moment where um, I probably made not a great judgment call as the ref because I saw somebody who I hadn't, this first time I'd seen the fence, I didn't know how good they were. I think they ended up winning the whole thing. So they were pretty good. Um, and he just touched this person on the mask. And I was like, you know, that's not, I, I couldn't tell from, from the angle or whatever, whether he was just being like super cautious or whether he was actually out of measure. And, you know, when we fence, we tend to fence with a bit more contact. Right. So I said, uh, I'm not going to allow it because it was a bit light. And he was like, oh, okay. Then he kind of punted them in the head a bit, bit too hard the next time. I was like, okay, fine. You, you hit as lightly as you want. It was deliberate. Fine. <laughs> I got it. And this poor person had to get like effectively punched in the face with a rapier for me to understand that there is a cultural difference between SCA hitting and, and historical martial arts hitting. And, you know, just because you do hit considerably lighter than we tend to do. But if, you, if you're doing three tournaments a day, for a week, you yeah. need light head hits or you're going to be screwed by the end of the week. Correct. Correct. I, uh, I like, I like a light touch. I will be honest. I will like if you, if, because you got through my guard, if you got right. through my guard and. Then you deserve to get hit. Exactly. You deserve to yeah. get hit. It doesn't take much to kill someone with a sharp object. It takes like three pounds of pressure. Yes. Or done. less. Done. And then you're dead. Right. Exactly. That's why sharp things yeah. are very effective. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay. Now I better get onto the knitting before okay. the, the knitters in the, in the listening really group just kind of give up in disgust. I'm really okay. um, Questions were. Okay. I have actually knitted back when mm -hmm. I was very young at boarding school. One of the matrons had a little knitting club and I had a go and, and we knitted this, this little thing and it was actually, so I've, I've done it once. Um, uh, but that's, the, the the sum total of my knitting experience but i guess the first thing is are you doing historical knitting or modern knitting both yes okay. so i go ahead uh, so i learned how to knit on double pointed needles especially so that i could do historical knitting what and is a double pointed needle oh so I'm, I'm envisioning a fork no so it's basically a stick with points on both ends okay fine Right, that's another so point of needle. Got there it. Are, there are three basically types of knitting needles. There are straight ones with like a big ball or something on the end so it doesn't mm -hmm. slip off. And those are just back and forth. There is a very modern thing, which is a circular needle, which is two, two needles. And then there's like a tube that connects it. 
I've seen those, yeah. And then there's the double-pointed needle, or as we call them, DPNs. And those are basically a stick or a piece of metal that had that don't have ed that are sharp on both ends or, or, or that you mm-hmm. knit on one needle and knit off. And that's how you basically knit in a circle. Okay. So am I right in thinking that, that like historically most households would have had knitters in them? It was a really common skill or is it a bit rarer than that? It's a, well, it depends on what time period, right? Okay. So by the 14th century, you are seeing knitting happen. So knitting is happening by like there's painting. Is it that young? Yes. So before then, there was something called nail binding, which the Vikings did. And they, it is basically one needle and it's very complicated and it involves loops, but it's beautiful. And uh, then uh, the, the Egyptians, like, so we're talking pre-Christ time, uh, actually t- learned how to knit. And they, there's a bunch of Egyptian cotton socks that are still in existence. And that's a thing. And then by the 14th century, you start seeing bags and, and other things that are in the, like France and, and England in the 14th century. And by the 16th century, they're starting to do things like gloves and hats and, and things like that. So, right, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have like knitting shops no, 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 no. They didn't. Uh, it's, I don't know of one. Let's put it that way. I don't <laughs> okay. think I know of one. So. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I've. A knitting guild by the 16th century. There was knitting guild. Okay. So that could okay. be a knitting shop, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, well, if, if there's a guild, it, it, it presupposes that people are doing it professionally. Yes, there was professional knitters by that point. Right. Okay. There, was, there were some. Uh, I, I think uh, Queen Elizabeth I, not the current one, Queen Elizabeth I mm-hmm. made some edicts like everyone will have this kind of hat to wear on Sunday or something. And that was right. really to make sure that the knitting guild and the wool uh, industry kept uh, okay. being used. Okay, so, but like spinning was done at home, right? Yes, the spinning was done at home. I mean, I'm sure that uh, there were spinning shops by the 16th century as well, but by mm-hmm. in the 14th century... You spun wool, for sure. There's yeah, so you're, you're, they're spinning wool at home, and then I guess people just sitting at home and knitting. So how do you know about historical... I, I don't suppose anyone wrote a treatise in the 15th century on knitting, did they? There is... So um, there's a history of knitting book called... And uh, Rudd, can't remember his first name. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. There, we have... We don't have any books from the time period that I know of. We have examples of the object, right? Okay. One of the good things about some arts and sciences are arts like food and sword fighting. You have to write a book about it or any, or that's how people know. Yeah. Actual, some objects still exist. So there are objects that exist. The Museum of London has some amazing hats and there's like a, glo- a little kid's glove in there. When I was in London, I got I totally went in and took tons of pictures of everything. I was like, how did they do the gusset on the that sort of fun stuff on there? Like like every like every sword person I know when they go into a museum and there's swords, like we're getting up close to the glass and we're like looking to see exactly yeah. like how, how it was made or how long it is or something. Mm-hmm. With knitters, knitters will go into museums and it'll be like, how did they knit that? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of hats. 
and there's lots of gloves from the 16th uh, century. I don't think there's, and there's, there's the Egyptian socks that are available. There's not very much in between um, because wool breaks down quicker than cotton does. So, okay. Um, and there's some pictures of um, uh, of the knitting Madonnas, and uh, mm-hmm. where uh, because where they have them knitting um, a shirt for Christ in the uh, in some of the paintings. Mm-hmm. And so we know knitting existed, but we don't know that they don't know did how it. they did it. Yeah. I guess it it strikes. Okay, most cloth is made by uh, weaving on a loom. Whereas, yes. And that's a big specialist bit of equipment and it's expensive to set up and it requires kind of specialist training. And I mean, people had looms in their houses. Um, Ulysses' wife, Penelope, being like the most famous example, probably, or maybe Arachne. Um, but uh, it strikes me that knitting is just a way that you can... I mean, my granny used to sit and watch TV and knit sweaters for all her eight grandchildren, right? So, so you can actually make cloth with just your two hands and a couple of sticks, you think it would have been earlier and more widespread. Yes, but no, this is one of the best things about like, you know, doing it on, on your own. You can't really get wooden, or at least at the time, the, to get the really fine sort of cloth that you mm-hmm. have, you need metal. And they didn't have metal, the ability to make metal so fine as we do now, or at least they did by the Elizabethan age. So before then, they were using sticks. They were using wood that they wood, yeah. down into, and they can't get it so fine that you could make a nice, fine uh, object like you could with with weaving. Now, uh, you, can, now you can, but also... It's yeah, I mean, most, most T-shirts are knitted. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But, now, but back in the day, back in the 14th, pre-16th century, they could, did not have the ability to machine uh, the metal so fine that they could make knitting needles out of it. And, that was, and you can't use it out of wood. Uh, okay. Interesting. All right. So um, are you working on any particular... As you can tell, like, when I told my patrons that, you know, you're coming on and you're a knitter or whatever, some of them clearly knit. I have a lot <laughs> of knitting questions, and it may be a bit obvious that I don't know anything about knitting. <laughs> I'm asking these for, for the for the benefit of the knitting um, segment of the audience. Um, okay, do you have a favourite historical or fencing related knitting project? Oh, a Monmouth cap. So it's because it's our time period. Okay, so is a flat, what is a Monmouth cap? So a Monmouth cap is uh, it's basically a sea basically a sea shanty hat, right? <laughs> Just like, right. Okay. Like just, it's basically a big thick brim, and then it has like this little thing on the top. And just think of it as a, a ski cap, kind of like a sort of okay. like in the time period. There's. Super- I will find a picture and put it in the show notes for the curious. Yeah. I, have, I have a I have a cup. I have that for you. I'll I'll find it for you. Oh, okay, lovely. Please do. My favorite one, and also super important. It is from our time period. It is from the late 16th century, and I'm. Uh, pretty sure that it was on the on the Mary Rose. The, I think we have some mm-hmm. examples from the Mary Rose. But uh, most importantly, at SCA events, which are outside, it keeps your ears warm at night. Because <laughs> 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 most important, fantastic. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, now I have a couple of questions that I tend to uh, finish up with. I hope the knitters are satisfied. 
people, I did my best. Um, what is the best idea you've never acted on? So we did talk a little bit about my website, and that was the default I was going to go to was I need to fix it because it was originally made in the 1990s and okay. not been updated since then. And I have not gotten off my duff to figure out how to fix it, but I will. I need to hire someone to help me do that, really, because web design these days is an actual for real job, and I should probably hire someone who's better <laughs> plinking around. But I've come up with a better idea that I'm going to stick with, and that is uh -huh. I should I should start a revolution is really what should happen for women and okay. women and non-binary and uh, non-majority uh, non gender in fencing because... Um, right. Okay, and, I'm, all, I'm all about that. Carry on. Uh, so, HEMA is a little bit better than the SCA, but only because you, I don't think you guys have... You don't have the numbers that we quite do. And by that, I mean, I don't think you have the, no one has done the math on how uh, little women are represented in HUMA. We have done that in the SCA, and that's been fairly recently. And it turns out that uh, uh, some very smart folks have done some actual math, not me, but actual people doing actual math, have determined using regressives and all sorts of other mm -hmm. math abilities we usually start out with about 45% of the women in the SCA, 45% of the people who come to start fencing in the SCA are women. And when it okay. comes to who, the number of women in Masters of Defense, there's 50, something about 13%. We go from 45 ah, to 45%. That's, that's damning, that is. Right. So we call it the leaky pipe problem, which is there yeah. is just systemic sexism and racism throughout all of our through, throughout all of swords right all, mm -hmm. in every aspect of it where it comes to we don't have equipment that fits women to we don't yep. have mentors for women we don't have teachers for women we, we do have some of this like i'm talking in the bell curve of humanity yeah, right? yeah. like over the bell of the sca or in swordsmanship we're talking in the like 80 percent a level of, of like the bell curve right um yeah so not all swords right let's not do that hashtag not, not all not all swords hashtag but we're i and the the reason why i haven't done a revolution is is that i don't know how okay i want this to happen i want there to be a revolution in the sca and in hema and all mm -hmm. swords everywhere because you're losing 50 percent of your competitors. You're losing 50% of the people you could be stabbing, right? Like, I want to stab more right. people. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, my ultimate plan is stab more people. I want to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very selfish motivation. But we need, like, I need people to deeply understand that when, when we say that the system is sexist, we're not saying you are sexist people. I mean, you might be, but, like, you are not, are not being sexist. Hmm. It is the systems that are sexist. The systems were set up primarily for men, generally set up for white men. And because of that, it is so hard for minorities, people of color, and for women to get into the system that was not built for them. And so I want everyone to understand like, just how hard it is, how many more barriers that have been placed for people from equipment, from teachers, from opportunities, for people being shoved into the administration roles that get no love and attention like we discussed right. at the beginning of the podcast, right? 
All of yeah. these things are part of the problem. And I have been talking about this for well over a decade. And I don't know what to do anymore at this point. Like I'm I like, how do I get how do I get more buy-in from the people that the system makes it okay, good for? Like the system is built for white. Right. How do I yeah, get yeah, yeah. in to understand that the system is built for you, but it's also a detriment for them as well, right? Because you right. have less people to fight with you. Yes, and the less you know, less sort of different points of view to lift different kinds of minds to bring to bear on any given problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, on, on this show, at least, we're all we're entirely in favour of that sort of thing. This is the only podcast I know of that has a minimum fifty percent female guests. Oh, that's that's part, part part of the policy when I set it up. Was like, okay, the point of the show really is to get as many different viewpoints as possible. And the first most obvious thing to do was to make sure that we had enough women on the show. And so we have like every, at the moment it's, a, it's um, we have slightly more women than men so far as guests. And I, I'm going to keep you're it ahead. that way. Slight, slightly more women than men. So what was that? You're ahead of your time. Well, <laughs> well, maybe, um, but it's, well, because, it's 2021. We should perhaps accept that women are part of culture. Right, right. Yes. And I also, you know, I'm, I, I have two daughters. I, you know, I, I want the world to be set up for them. You know? And we have that. to start now. We have to start right. today. Okay. So, revolution, sign me up. <laughs> What are you going to do? I'm not part of the SCA, so I probably can't help you directly very much. But, but we're just going to do re- revolution sword, sword revolution is what we're going to okay. call it. There we are. Yeah, I've, got, I've got a hat right now. <laughs> okay. So, um, so well, I, I guess then any listeners who who want to join your revolution should probably get in touch with you. That that's fine. Okay. Um, and probably we're talking SCA rather than source generally. Yes. So, okay. Well, because well, it has to start somewhere where you, I think it has to, tactically speaking, you have a lot more, should we say, clout in the SCA than you do in the historical fencing world because you've spent your time in the SCA and you have rank and experience right. and what have you. Right. So that would be the obvious place to start. But please don't finish there. <laughs> fair, absolutely fair. I'll try working. Okay. I'll start working on the revolution today. Okay, um, and I, I, I shall have a think about any masters of defence I know who happen to be middle-aged white men, and I shall I shall tell them to get in touch, and then you can tell them what to do. But I think actually, probably the 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 the. The point of most leverage, I would imagine, would be the existing masters of defense. You're correct. I think you're right. Because we're the gatekeeper, basically keeping people in or out of the organization. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, Right. I I, I do know a couple of um, middle-aged white men masters of defense in the SCA. I shall shall send them a lead today. Thank you. I am making a note. There we go. We have a month before this rolls out. Perhaps we can get something started before that. 
That would be excellent. Okay. All right. So my last question. Yes. If you were given a chest full of ducats, because it's the SCA, it has to be ducats, right? If not ducats, then florins or pieces of eight. <laughs> um, for the benefit of historical martial arts or the SCA, indeed, worldwide, what would you do with the money? So I was torn between okay. spending the money, spending the ducats, mm-hmm. on sending people to go find more historical manual because they're out there. We just don't know where they are, haven't got them translated but I feel yeah. like someone has already taken one. So I have oh, we do have manual. a lot. We have a lot of manuals. We have hundreds of them. Right. So I have More is idea. good, but okay. And first, translate the ducats into actual money. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> and then um, put it in the bank or put it in some sort of fund and then yeah. have every year... That way it will now, I will be spending the interest, not the actual amount of money. Yeah, okay. And have a ginormous, as big as I can afford, event where HEMA and the SCA come together every year and where I am spending real money and getting real, as many teachers as I can, both SCA and outside of the SCA and bringing together. Uh, David Biggs's uh, Lord Baltimore Challenge is as close as we can get to that right now. I would love for it to be bigger with, and if with more money, I could make that happen. <laughs> but like, I'm not, <laughs> but really, we're, I would like it to be a much bigger event and have a big focus on teaching. Now, of course, have tournaments because those of us that are competitive, <laughs> cough, cough, <laughs> really want that. Then also have it on teaching. So not only just teaching the historical martial art aspect, but also teaching how to teach and also yep. having much more dis- discussions on how to make things more diverse and equitable and have right. more inclusion in both of our groups, in, in swords in general. So that would what I do. Part of, part of the revolution is to have a massive and high-level event um, that, we, that is paid for with these bucket of ducats and where we are using more and more of our uh, expertise to get more people involved and get them taught and get them up to where they want to be and making it a destination for, for, for all fencing to come. Wow, that's genius. Um, I mean, the usual thing is a million dollars rather than a bucket of ducats or whatever, chest of ducats. Right. Um, and if, with a million dollars invested sensibly in income, bearing funds and what have you, you should be, you should have about 40 grand to spend reliably every year. And that's a lot more than most people spend on most events, I would say. So I think that's actually a pretty realistic goal. We just, yeah. Well, apart from, apart from the lack of cash, where the cash, it's fine. I could get the rest. But yeah, we could like people to actually put this on, right? We could hire like actual planners and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be such a burden on like for volunteers, volunteers and yeah because it actually is, you know it is a yeah, lot of jake, work it's a lot of work jake, i think i think jake norwood also mentioned um spending money on paying people running the events right because he, he ran long point which is one of the big historical martial arts events in the states um and yeah i, I seem to recall in in his interview he mentioned you know having money to pay his his the people running the event. Great. Um, because that, that way also, I mean, 
every event I've been to has been volunteer run. Um, and the volunteers are amazing and they do incredible amounts of work and they are, but, but there's usually not enough of them and there's, they usually worked far too hard and they don't get much of an event themselves. You know, they, they're spending the whole time working. Whereas if you had a few professionals there, I guess it's like hiring, you know, caterers for a wedding. Exactly. So the guests, so the guests can actually, you know, not spend any time in the kitchen doing the washing up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I think that's a brilliant idea. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. All right, well, Monica, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's been a delight talking to you. It's been great. Thank you so much. I love doing this and I love your podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Monica. And how could you not, really? You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, which also includes Monica's email address if you want to um, get in touch with her about joining her crusade. While you are there, you can also sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It really is critically important to keeping the microphones running here at Sword Guy Towers, if there were such a building, if only. Now, you can join us there on Patreon for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests, patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to medieval combat legend Steve Mulberger, who has not only spent 50 years, literally 50 years, doing various kinds of sword combat, particularly in the SCA, he has also produced a stack of essential books on medieval knightly combat, specifically things like Deeds of Arms and Royal Jousts. Those are actually titles of some of his books. So you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And also next week, we will have a short in-between episode where I will reveal to you the glories and gorgeousness of the new George Silver Paradoxes of Defense audiobook. And there'll be a link there to the crowdfunding campaign, which is launching next week. You don't want to miss it. So I will see you next week.